we may hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Where are you from? It's a question I imagine we're all familiar with and certainly one that I get asked a lot. I'm never quite sure what to say. I mean, should I say Pittsburgh? After all, it is my home. I've lived here for seven years. Or maybe I should just say Pennsylvania. I've lived in the state for 13 and a half years. Or should I say what most people expect, which is, of course, England. But that only elicits a follow-up. Oh, which part? Well, do I say Cheshire, where I grew up? Or Manchester, where I first worked? Or Shropshire, where I last worked? It gets kind of tricky if you move around. And I think Jesus would have understood that. I mean, when he was a child, if you'd asked him, where are you from, what would he have said? Would he have said Bethlehem, because he was born there? Would he have said Nazareth, after he moved there? Or would he have said Egypt, where he first lived? Now, I doubt many of you would have picked Egypt as the place where Jesus was from. But it is where he started out uh, the early portion of his life. Well, this morning, we're going to take a fresh look at these three vignettes that Matthew gives us as the story of the nativity unfolds in his gospel. There's the flight to Egypt, the slaughter of the innocents, and the return to Nazareth. First, then, the flight to Egypt. Verse 13. After they had left, the they, by the way, is the wise men who had just visited Jesus in the house where he was in Bethlehem. And then, having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the wise men left for their own country. After they had gone, Matthew tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and stay there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Why Egypt, do you suppose? Well, there are a number of uh, possible good reasons. For starters, it wasn't so far away. Uh, You know, Bethlehem is about 75 miles south of Nazareth, where they'd come from, and the border with Egypt is about another 75 miles south. Sorry. And there were already a lot of refugees from Palestine living in Egypt. Some estimate the number at more than a million. Another reason is the reason we find in our text, Matthew gives. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. And that's a direct quote from the prophet Hosea. And the original context was referring back to the Exodus. But as is so often the case in Matthew's gospel, we find there are double or multiple fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies, with the second or subsequent fulfillments often referring to Jesus. But I think there's even more here in this. For in it, we find echoes going back even further. Before Moses led the people out of Egypt... God had led them into Egypt for their safety as they fled from famine. 
You can read all about that in the last chapters of the book of Genesis and the story of Jacob and his sons. And those sons hated their brother Joseph. They wanted him out of the way. And so eventually they threw him down this pit. And then with a pang of conscience, one of them decided maybe they shouldn't kill him. Let's make a buck or two and sell him to some slave traders, which is what they did. And by the end of the story, Joseph, who'd been taken to Egypt, had risen to second in command in the entire uh, Egyptian empire. And in that position, he saved his family from starvation. And at the end of that story, the very last chapter of Genesis, we read these haunting words of Joseph as he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, I can't imagine how Joseph and Mary must have felt fleeing to Egypt. But here in the face of an oppressive enemy, they remain steadfastly obedient to God's leading. Now, for us who know how the story ends, it's hard to imagine what it must have been like in real time. But when we face setbacks and maybe on the receiving end of people who intend to harm us, we should remember that even those things that may be intended for harm, God can use for good. And as we encounter the great biblical narrative of God saving his people, we see this time and time again. And it's good for us to be reminded that history doesn't happen in a vacuum. Rather, it happens in a context. And with God's story, we see over and over in the Bible echoes of previous events. Events that tell us something about what God is like and about what God is doing. And in these few verses this morning, we find a striking parallel between Jesus and Moses. Both men spent their earliest years in the land of Egypt. Both saw the suffering of others and both went on to lead their people out of captivity. Listen to this. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, we learn, A Hebrew woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. She knew that Pharaoh had commanded his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile but you shall let every girl live. So the baby was put in a basket and hidden among the reeds on the bank of the river, and he survived. Now, compare and contrast. A Hebrew woman named Mary was engaged to Joseph, and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph took her as his wife, and she gave him a son. An angel appeared to Joseph and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. They escaped to Egypt, and the baby survived. Just as the divine word directed Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, to escape Pharaoh's cruelty and gain their freedom, here an angel directs Joseph to go to Egypt to escape Herod's murderous intent. And that leads us to the second of our three vignettes, the second paragraph. The account of the atrocities of Herod. 
often referred to as the slaughter of the innocents. Herod's order to have all the boys under two killed was a heinous act of cowardice, fueled by fear and raw power. He was a particularly nasty piece of work, actually. He he killed his wife and three of his sons. And Josephus, the ancient historian, also tells us that Herod left strict orders that upon his death, to make sure that some people were mourning, that they were to go around and kill some notable people in in Jerusalem. Now, tragically, acts of brutality such as these have been repeated time and time again over the centuries since. We've seen it in the purges of Stalin, the genocide of Hitler, the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and Rwanda, and just, what, less than 48 hours ago, a bomb blast killed 21 worshippers and wounded 70 others attending a New Year's Eve service in a Coptic church in Egypt, in Alexandria. And yet, as we ponder the violence in our scripture reading and in our world today, we are reminded also that with God there is always hope. The ultimate purposes of God are sometimes revealed in and through terrible suffering along the way. Now, I'm not saying that God is causing this suffering, and I'm not saying that the suffering doesn't matter. Matthew's not saying that either. He's not saying, oh, it's not so bad. Rather, he references in this second paragraph another prophecy, this time from Jeremiah, now doubly fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah. That's the place where Rachel was buried. Wailing and lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. And just as Rachel wept as the people of Israel were carted off into exile years before, so here Matthew pictures that great matriarch of Israel weeping over the slaughter of these latest innocents. And yet in the midst of it, in the midst of the tyranny and the slaughter and the selfishness, there is hope. The tears will be turned to joy. The mourning will come to an end. God hears the weeping of Rachel and all of the Rachels who've come after her. And he's not deaf to the cries against injustice. And he will come again in great power. And so even in the midst of the weeping and the wailing, we're reminded that God is sovereign the one whose name is holy, our saviour, Jesus, though in need of protection as an infant, is no longer weak and helpless. And the living God is bigger than any pharaoh or Herod or terrorist bomber. Herod, like every single person before and after, could not thwart God's plans. And so we see in this third vignette, with the return of Jesus from his Egyptian exile, It was to take on not some pathetic dictator like Herod. Rather, it was to take on death itself on the cross and to destroy the power of death. Matthew tells us that this return of the Holy Family to Israel is once again a fulfillment of Scripture. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled he will be called a Nazarene. 
Now, we can't so easily identify the source of this prophecy, for, for Matthew is a little bit more vague, speaking in general terms about the prophets. But the fact that Jesus went to live in a place like Nazareth is a powerful fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You remember in Isaiah, it was prophesied that the one to come will be like a twig from the stump of Jesse. That this one will be despised and rejected. So if Jesus were asked, where are you from? And he said, Nazareth, that was about as unimpressive a place as you could wish to come from. You remember later in life, um, somebody says of Nazareth, can anything, anything good come from Nazareth? Well, in these three short scenes of Jesus's infancy and early childhood, Matthew shows us how each part had been prophesied and how in this extraordinary tapestry woven through the scriptures, God has been working his purposes out in order to bring salvation to the world. This Christmas season, we once again give thanks that Jesus, who began his life as a refugee in Egypt, leads us out of captivity, out of being slaves, slaves to addiction, slaves to sin and selfishness, even to death and into life eternal. The heart of God is one of great compassion, as again and again he acts to save his people, through Moses, through the prophets, and above all, in the word made flesh, in Jesus. But I want to go back for a moment to my opening question. Where are you from? For Jesus, he could answer from Bethlehem, from Egypt, from Nazareth. He was from all of those places. But as St. John reminds us, he came from somewhere else. For Jesus was with God in the beginning. Jesus came from heaven. He transcends time and space. Indeed, Jesus is God with us, full of grace and truth. He is the great I am. And pretty soon we realize we cannot pigeonhole Jesus. We cannot fully know him, for he is God. But where does that leave us? How will you answer the question, where are you from? The truth is, the question that matters this morning is not so much, where are you from? But rather, who are you? And from where do you get your identity? Is it from where you're from? The school you went to? The job you hold? The grief you bear? Are you defined by your past, your upbringing, your failures, your money, your success? Or will you be defined by who you are as a person who is made in the image of God? And are you able to say, that you are a child of God, adopted, loved, forgiven, healed, restored. Whoever you are, whether you're like Herod with power and prestige or the wise men with great learning or Mary and Joseph in their faithful obedience, the humbling, leveling truth is that all 
have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all need a savior. And so with the shepherds, with the wise men, with all who have ever lived and will live, we are summoned to kneel at the feet of Jesus, our Savior. And it is from the security of knowing who we are before God that we can make sense of our past, at least enough sense, and have hope for the future. Who knows what this coming year will hold? Will God call you to a new job, a new home, a new school? Or perhaps you're right where you're meant to be, here in this place. But maybe here there is unfinished business. Maybe the tough business of putting right that which is wrong in a relationship, at home, or at work, or in the church. Maybe God will call you to take on a new responsibility. Or maybe God will have you rest a while and sit in his presence and ponder all these things in your heart. Or maybe this year will be your last. At the start of a new year, there is much that we don't know. But of this we can be sure. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and the prophets, the God who has acted in history and in time, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the Lord of all. You can even say amen, if you like. (laughs) And to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. And as his children, no matter where you have come from or where you are going, you can know his love and his leading and his life. And so at the start of this new year, with St. Paul, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom And revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of the power for us who believe? Amen.